You are listening to audio from Redeemer Church in Odessa, Texas. You can connect with us online by visiting RedeemerChurchOdessa.org. Hi guys, um, my name is Megan and I am part of the community group that meets at the Gonzalez's house. And I'm going to read Jonah 3 for you guys. Oh, and um, if you don't see me often, it's because I'm usually in kids. So uh, there we go. Jonah 3. Then the word of the Lord comes to Jonah the second time, saying, Arise, go to Nineveh, the great city, and call out against it the message that I tell you. So Jonah arose and went to Nineveh according to the word of the Lord. Now Nineveh was an exceedingly great city, three days' journey in breadth. Jonah began to go into the city, going a day's journey, and he called out, Yet forty days and Nineveh shall be overthrown. And the people of Nineveh believed God. They called for a fast and put on sackcloth from the greatest of them to the least of them. The word reached the king of Nineveh, and he arose from his throne, removed his robe, covered himself in sackcloth and in ashes. And he issued a proclamation and publication through Nineveh. By the decree of the king and his nobles, let neither man nor beast, herd nor flock, taste anything. Let them not feed or drink water, but let man and beast be covered with sackcloth and let them call out mightily to God. Let everyone turn from his evil way and from the violence that is in his hands. Who knows? God may turn and relent and turn from his fierce anger so we may not perish. When God saw what they did, how they turned from their evil way, God relented of the disaster that he had said he would do to them, and he did not do it. The grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of the Lord endures forever. Amen. Amen. Thank you, Megan. Thank you. Thank you. Hey, good morning. It's good to be with you. My name is Tanner House. I'm the lead pastor here at Redeemer Odessa. It's good to be with you. If you're a guest, thank you for being here under... No, we've moved those. On the back on the communion table, there is a connect card, or you can scan the QR code and fill out a connect card. We'd love an opportunity to connect with you, to see how we can serve you, to see how we can get you plugged into the life of the body. Uh, And if you're on your phone, we use the ESV. If you need a Bible, you can raise your hand. Daniel will bring you one. Uh, And we also have an app with notes on it if you would like that as well. It's just Redeemer Odessa in the App Store. So, uh, again, thank you for being here. We're back in Jonah. Every year, I set for myself a set of of reading goals. Uh, It's essentially what it is, is a list of books that I want to read. By the end of the year, sometimes they're books by authors that I like or themes that I'm trying to touch on for the year. So just for an example, professionally this year, I've been reading a lot of books on, on counseling and, and caring for people in, in crisis. Um, professionally, every year my list pretty much looks the same. It's like I'm reading these history books because there's an unwritten rule about being a mid-30s dude once you turn like 35, you have to get into smoking meats or reading a lot of books about World War II. So I've chose the latter. Uh, so I'm reading a lot of history books, reading a lot of musician biographies. Uh, I try to read one presidential biography every year. Uh, I also force myself to read one classic work a year. So I don't love fiction, but I'm trying to like be more widely read. Uh, So many of these classic works have so many clear gospel themes that I need in my life, 
but I'm just a simple guy. I just want some facts, but I'm really trying to become a little more, uh, get myself a little more depth. Anyways, a few years ago, Kendra and I sat down with uh, Charles Dickens' A Christmas Carol, and we read it together. She'd read a chapter. I'd read a chapter. It was really cute. Um, it, it was fun. The story was good. But honestly, I just prefer to watch the movie. Um, there's a million adaptations of Dickens' Christmas Carol, and my favorite one is the Disney one. Um, you know, the one with, I can like watch this movie in 30 minutes as opposed to taking several hours to reading this book and trudging through this old English that Charles Dickens write in, writes in. And I'm not really smart enough to understand that. Anyways, whatever version of this story that you like, I'm going to go with Ebenezer Scrooge, Scrooge McDuck this morning, okay? Uh, Ebenezer Scrooge McDuck goes through the course of his life in one night seeing his life through the lens of the ghost of Christmas past, the ghost of Christmas present, and the ghost of Christmas future. And he is realizing what a wretched, wretched person that he is. And so by the time he gets to the ghost of Christmas future, he's standing in a cemetery, looking at his own headstone, realizing that he is going to die a miserable old man with no friends or no family to mourn his death. He realizes how wretched he has become as a person. And he looks up at the ghost of Christmas future and he says, Tell me, spirit. I'm going to summarize. He says, Tell me, spirit. Are these things how they're going to happen? Like, has this already been determined? Or if I make some changes now, can these things be altered? Is this how it has to be? And then the spirit pushes him in the grave and he's going down. There's fire at the bottom of it. And he wakes up in his bed. He realizes it's been a dream and that he has been gifted a second chance. So there are several things that we've learned in our, our walk through Jonah so far. Um, on a theological level, the book of Jonah teaches us about the character of God. We have a God who is what's known as immutable, which means he's unchanging. He's unchanging from age to age. And our text today is going to call us to consider God's nature as an all-knowing, all-loving, all-powerful, and unchanging God of the universe who is sovereign over his creation and sovereign over salvation. Another thing, just a real practical life thing, is that there's some real consequences for our actions there are some real consequences for disobedience to God. There are some real intangible consequences for sin. And God, as a good, gracious, and loving Father, disciplines those He loves for holiness. His discipline is always for our good because it's always loving and it is always redemptive. And let's be honest. Thanks be to God that that is the case, right? We serve a God who is a God of second chances. We serve a God who is a God of a hundred chances or of a million chances. Because he's a God of grace. And he is a God of mercy. And he is a God who loves you in spite of you. But when Christ makes a calling on your life, it is total. 
And God requires and expects love and devotion and worship. So we don't have the option of knowing God's word, of hearing God's word, and continuing to live on in disobedience. We can't hear the word of God and live in disobedience to God. You can love and you can serve God, or you can reject God. And a rejection of God leaves, leads to a separation from God. But if you're a believer in Jesus for the salvation of your soul, God is persistent in his pursuit of you. God is persistent in his pursuit of you to bring you back to himself. This judgment of God against your sin by whatever means necessary is actually God's kindness to you to bring you back into a right relationship with him. So today we're going to continue walking through Jonah and we're going to look at the grace and kindness of God to wayward sinners. And we're going to look at our need for confession and repentance of sin. So I'd ask you all, church I'd ask you all to really examine your life this morning. Are you obedient to the word of God? Or are you running from him? Or are you ambivalent towards him? Do you care about Christ? So let's pray and we're going to dive in. Lord Jesus, we need you. Show us our need for you this morning, Jesus. Lord, I pray that you would move in our hearts, Lord, that you would give us the faith necessary to believe and see you as you rightly are, high and lifted up, resurrected King Jesus. Lord, draw near in this moment. Church, if you're willing, I'd ask that you would pray for yourself. That the Lord would bring encouragement where encouragement is needed. And the Lord would bring conviction where conviction is needed. Lord, we love you. Help us to love you more. Lord, we trust you. Help us to trust you more. It's in your holy and precious name that we pray, King Jesus. Amen. Amen. All right, Jonah chapter 3, beginning in verse 1, it says, Then the word of the Lord came to Jonah the second time, saying, Arise, go to Nineveh, that great city, and call out against it the message that I tell you. All right, so let's set the scene. Jonah has been in the belly of a great fish for three days, and he prayed for deliverance. Remember, the story of Jonah is not a story about a man getting swallowed up by a fish, but it is a story about God. It's a story about God and his pursuit of sinful humanity. So Jonah's in the belly of the fish. He prays for deliverance. The Lord speaks to the fish, and in obedience to the word of the Lord, the fish then spits Jonah out onto dry land. Nothing is said about Jonah's state of mind as he's laying up on that beach there. Um, he's on the shore, but I imagine it's some mix of like relief and gratitude and shock. And he's been in the belly of this giant sea beast for a couple of days. And we don't know what he's thinking. But in any case, similar to how the book started, God speaks to Jonah again. And this is grace on Jonah's life. 
God would have been perfectly just to allow Jonah to drown, but he appointed the fish. God would have been perfectly just to allow Jonah to be killed inside the belly of that fish, but that's not how it ended. God would have been perfectly just by allowing Jonah to make it all the way to Tarshish and away from his presence and away from the will of the Lord. God would have been just to have been done with Jonah. But that's not who God is. And the will, the Lord's will is sure and certain, and God works in persistent grace in order that we can serve him. God will always bring his people back to him, and his will, in spite of us, God is going to accomplish what he set out to accomplish. So these words are similar to the first calling of God on Jonah to go to Nineveh. He says, arise, get up quickly, go to Nineveh, that great city. This does not mean that Nineveh is awesome. This doesn't mean that Nineveh is full of good people, but that it is a large city. God tells Jonah, arise, go there and call out against it. In the first encounter with God, God tells Jonah that Nineveh is an evil place. So Jonah is going to pronounce God's judgment on them, and he is God's instrument. God will give Jonah the words to say. Let's keep going. Verse 3. So Jonah arose and went to Nineveh according to the word of the Lord. Now Nineveh was an exceedingly great city, three days' journey in breadth. This time, Jonah obeys. He gets up, and he heads for Nineveh in obedience to the word of God. This journey to Nineveh probably took him a month or so. He's on foot. Uh, It's some 500 miles away, so he's walking 500 miles in obedience to uh, the word of the Lord. Now i got a song stuck in my head. that 500 miles? Anyways, thank you, somebody. Uh, That was not in my notes, uh, PTL. It just came to me. Anyway, so Jonah's walking 500 miles, and for him to preach to the whole city, it's going to take him three full days to walk walk across it. This is an ancient city, and for an ancient city, this thing is huge. But Jonah's being obedient. Jonah's being obedient to God to go and preach God's message to his enemies. He is being obedient to go to a group of people who for years have been oppressing the nation of Israel. God says, go to these people. Many would argue that it was fear that caused Jonah to flee from his calling in chapter 1. And while I can't disagree because the Assyrians were just brutal and violent people, I'm more inclined to think that because Jonah knows that God is a merciful God, abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, Jonah doesn't want to go to Nineveh because of hate. Jonah hates the Assyrians. This hate is racially exclusive because they have been enemies of God's people for so long. And this hate is pridefully personal and selfish. Jonah knows God. And because he knows God, he knows God's character as a loving and merciful, kind God. And Jonah is trying to withhold forgiveness to a people group out of pure hate. And before we condemn Jonah, or worse, before we agree with Jonah, 
We are all guilty of wanting God's judgment for individuals or people groups that we don't like. But we never want it for ourselves. And when you really consider the depths of your sin, we all deserve God's wrath. So Jonah's on the edge of the city. And let's see what develops. Verse 4. Jonah began to go into the city, going a day's journey, and he called out, Yet forty days and Nineveh shall be overthrown. And the people of Nineveh believed God. They called for a fast and put on sackcloth from the greatest of them to the least of them. What Jonah said has been summarized in just a few words. Forty days and Nineveh will be overthrown. Five Hebrew words are all we have. It is possible that Jonah interacted with people on a more intimate, personal level, and he expounded on his message, but the text doesn't tell us that. All we know are these five words. And I don't want to read into this text that this was all Jonah was willing to say. Rather, what I think is that we should interpret this, that this was all that was necessary to say. Because God's message of salvation is sufficient. It's sufficient apart from any human effort. And God, in his sovereign message, is always effective in power. Remember what Jonah said at the end of chapter 2. At the end of 2, verse 9, Jonah says, Salvation belongs to the Lord. The calling is clear. For both of these, both these ancient people and for us today, repent or perish. Turn away from your evil ways or you too will be overthrown. God is gracious, and yet he does not tolerate sin and rebellion. The Hebrew word for overthrown is used in various places in the Old Testament. It can mean complete destruction, like in the case of Sodom and Gomorrah, if you remember that story in Genesis. Or it can mean to turn something upside down, like an angry toddler flipping a plate at the dinner table. Or it could also mean to turn around. This latter usage of the word carries this idea of repentance. So the author of Jonah, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, writes very creatively when he says uh, this in the Hebrew. He says that Jonah's message from God is, Turn yourselves around, or you will be turned upside down. Repent. Or be destroyed. Verse 5 says that the Ninevites believed God. This carries with it more than they believed what Jonah said to be true, but that they trusted in Jonah's God. This text carries with it this thrust of immediacy. The people of Nineveh, confronted with the gravity of their sin and the gravity of their impending doom, respond. And they respond immediately. I think this is important for us. The gospel is not behavior modification. Like Jesus doesn't say change your behavior. We're not saved by good works. We're not saved by right living. We're not Ebenezer Scrooge McDuck, right? Be better, try harder. That's not the calling of God on our lives. That's not what the gospel says. However, 
If the calling of Jesus on your life for faith and repentance doesn't motivate you to live for the honor and glory of Jesus, if the calling of Jesus doesn't motivate you to die to sin in your own life, if the calling of Jesus doesn't motivate you to flee from sin, to put it to death, to be obedient to the word of God, if you claim to be a Christian and your life looks nothing like what the scriptures are calling you to, if you continue to walk in sin with no thoughts of Jesus, if you consistently neglect the bride of Christ and the word of God, then you may think you are a Christian, but you may not be. God calls us to faith. God calls us to repentance. And this faith is active and not just lip service. Christian, God has called you into a family to be wholly his. And this happens through the faith that is given to us to believe in the cross and to believe in the resurrection of Jesus as sufficient and necessary for our salvation. And it is evidenced through faith and repentance. And God expects this type of devotion from his people. The way that this is conveyed to the readers of Jonah is that the response of the Ninevites is what God expects of his people. Yet, in Old Testament history, when you look at the nation of Israel, this, though this was his expectation... God's people rarely responded to the word of God with belief. God had covenanted with his people. God had made an eternal promise to his people. He says, I will be your God and you will be my people. And yet they constantly rejected him. And today, people do the same thing. People who would even claim to be Christians have such a low view of sin. We don't take sin seriously. Christians in many ways are not people marked by confession and repentance. At our worst, we aren't characterized by faith and dependency. We would prefer to do our own thing until we feel like we actually need something from God. But to be forgiven, we need confession. We need confession of sin and repentance of sin. So let me define those terms for us. First, we have confession. Confession is, says you must agree with God about your sin and name it as God names it specifically. Listen, we don't sin in general. We sin in specifics. So we must confess as specifically as we sin. True confession consists in humbly telling the whole truth about our sin. Just be honest. Counterfeits of confession, a.k.a. false confessions, inevitably consist in pride and resistance to speaking the truth. We mouth cheap words. We're dishonest. 
We shift blame by saying things like, I'm sorry it bothered you so much, or I'm sorry if I hurt you, or I didn't mean to, or forgive me for reacting when you sinned against me, or one of my personal favorites, if you were offended, I apologize. These are deceptions. These are the sneaky ways of concealing what actually lies in our hearts. Confession is not about mouthing words, but about telling the truth from a changed heart. Confession is not about mouthing words, but about telling the truth from a changed heart. And that leads to repentance. Repentance means to turn. It consists in a heart turning back to God and away from your idols. It's a total change of mind. It's a replacement of false gods that rule your life. Because idolatry is essentially about what you love. Repentance requires changing whom you love. Repentance turns your whole heart, your whole person, back to God in love and in trust and in obedience instead of your idols. It trades hates for loves. Hating the sin you once loved and loving the God you've hated by your sin. It trades the lie of idolatry for worship in spirit and truth. Thomas Chalmers said the only way to dispossess the heart of an old affection is by the expulsive power of a new one. Deep idols must be pushed out by deeper worship. And this is nothing short of a miracle, and it is only possible by the work of the Holy Spirit in the heart of a Christian. What we're seeing in the Ninevites in our text today is this. There is conviction of sin and a model of true confession and repentance, and that's evidenced by belief. It's God's kindness to show us our sin and and lead us back to him. The Ninevites held a fast. They stopped eating and drinking. They put on sackcloth, which is like really itchy goat hair dress. Um, Through their actions, they were expressing grief and humility and the knowledge that they are an evil people who have sinned against the true and righteous holy God of the universe. Their behavior, this is an ancient practice showing that they are abandoning their sinful ways, their sinful indulgences, and turning from them to the calling of God on their life in submission and in obedience to him. This is the Old Testament pattern of repentance. In the New Testament, we see repentance coupled with confession. Confession of sin and turning away from God and return, or turning away from sin and returning to God. Repentance is more than just changing and not sinning so much. It's about turning away completely from sin and turning back to the cross of Jesus where our sin was dealt with fully. Jesus accomplished on the cross that which we could never accomplish on our own. He became sin in our place so that in him we can now be his righteousness. We can be his children through faith and repentance given to us by God's Holy Spirit. And church, do you repent like this? Do you repent like this? 
Do you confess your sins, as James says, one to another and be restored to God? Or do you just pretend like everything is okay? Like you're okay, I'm okay. That's a lie. That's a lie from the enemy, pretending like you're okay when you're not. Putting on a good front, a good face when you come in to here on Sunday mornings, but knowing internally that you are carrying heavy burdens and walking in sin. And Christ offers you a better way. Christ offers you a better way through confession and repentance to give it to him and he will forgive and he will restore you. The calling on your life from God is perfection. And we've all fallen short of the standard that God has set for us. But we have the cross. We have the cross of Jesus that has purchased our pardon, but we have to admit that we need him. We have to admit our neediness and our brokenness before God because confession and repentance are gifts to us. This is one of the reasons why we push community so hard here. It's because we all need one another not only to hear our confessions and receive them and help bring us back to the place where uh, God hears us and sees us, but we also offer loving and biblical correction when we are wandering away and when our desires from God are lacking. Jonah preaches, preaches a message of repentance, and it's received by pagan Ninevites, pagan Gentiles. Here again, we see Jonah as a lesser Christ. Last week, we talked about typology and just to review what that is, I'm going to read a definition. Typology is a literal, literary, hermeneutical, or biblical interpretation device in which a person, event, or institution in the Old Testament is understood to correspond with a person, event, or institution in the New Testament. So to clarify, there are things that occur in the Old Testament that point forward to events or people in the New Testament. We talked like Moses uh, wandering in the desert for 40 years and Jesus' temptation in the same desert for 40 years. Uh, we gave a bunch of those examples last week. The Old Testament events that typologically exist, they're shadows or pictures of things to come in the New Testament. So when you study the Bible in general and the Old Testament specifically, don't study them as a collection of writings or, or disjointed stories, but study the Bible as one big story of a God who rescues and redeems a sinful people unto himself. The story of the Bible is a story about Jesus, God incarnate, God in flesh, who comes to earth in accordance with the eternal decree given at the beginning of time that God would rescue a people, and he will be their God, and they will be his people. Look at what Jesus says, Matthew 12, 39 through 41. He says, but he answered them, an evil and adulterous generation seeks for a sign, but no sign will be given to it except the sign of the prophet Jonah. For just as Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of the great fish, so the son of man may be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. The men of Nineveh will rise up at the judgment with this generation and condemn it. For they repented at the preaching of Jonah. And behold, something greater than Jonah is here. 
So real briefly for context, Jesus has just healed a man, cast out a demon from this man. And these Pharisees, these religious leaders come up to Jesus and say, teacher, show us a miracle. Do something else. Give us a sign, Jesus, and we'll believe. Jesus, do some other stuff. Do some other cool stuff, and then we will believe. Jesus, we've seen all that you have already done, but do one more thing, and then we'll believe. That'll be enough. Jesus says the only sign that he's going to offer is the sign of Jonah. Jesus is encouraging his listeners here to believe in God, to turn from their sins. Jesus, the better Jonah, will not go into a belly of a fish for three days, but into a grave. Having been sacrificed for many on the cross for the forgiveness of sins. Through Jonah's ministry... The pagan Gentiles receive deliverance. Through Christ's ministry, the pagan Gentiles can be delivered in a much more full and complete way. Jesus is calling us to repentance. And through his death on our cross, we will be saved. And without repentance and faith in the resurrected Christ, we will be condemned for all eternity. Jesus is the better Jonah. This theme continues in the book of Jonah. We see the commitment of one Hebrew, one Jewish man, leading to the salvation of pagan Gentiles. Jonah is a shadow of the coming Christ. Jesus tells us something better than Jonah is here, and that's him. God is fulfilling the covenant he made with Abraham that all nations of the earth will be blessed through Christ, and God is a promise-keeping God. There is belief in Nineveh this day. The text tells us that the city of Nineveh, from the least to the greatest, participated in this fast. Look at verse 6. The word reached the king of Nineveh, and he arose from his throne and removed his robe and covered himself with sackcloth and satin ashes. The king gets up from his throne He replaces his royal robe uh, with this itchy and humble garment, and he sits in ashes. The king is aware of his own worthiness before a holy and just God, and he joins the city in repentance. The king, the mightiest king in the mightiest nation on the face of the earth at this time, recognizes that even he stands condemned as a sinner before a just and righteous God. The king's humility speaks to us that all people, that means all people, regardless of status, class, gender, race, or anything else that would divide us, are all equal before the cross of Christ. We all need grace. We are all marred by sin. We all need God's unmerited favor. We all need his grace to us. Verse 7, And he, that's the king, he issued a proclamation and published through Nineveh. By the decree of the king and his nobles, let neither man nor beast, herd nor flock, taste anything. Let them not feed or drink water, but let man and beast be covered with sackcloth, and let them call out mightily to God. Let everyone turn from his evil way and from the violence that is in his hands. Who knows? God may turn and relent and turn from his fierce anger so that we may not perish. 
The king is appealing to what he knows and what he's heard about God. God is a God who cares about his creation. Let's call out to this God. Let's call out to Jonah's God. They even get their animals involved. It's like a Hobby Lobby nativity scene. The camels and the donkeys bowing down. Just kidding. Um, but this just speaks to their level of desperation. That's what I get for not scripting my jokes out. No, nobody laughs at them. So, uh, their animals are involved, and this just speaks to the Ninevites' desperation. This is reminiscent of a conversation that they're having on the ship when the storm is raging in Jonah 1. Hey, call out to God, and perhaps, perhaps we will be saved. Maybe he'll hear us and, turn, and relent from his anger. The Ninevites, though, unlike the sailors, had been warned about this storm. Jonah's obedience to God had allowed God's kindness to come to the Ninevites. He says, let's pray. The king says, let's pray. Let's pray to the one true God, and he may hear us and relent from his anger against us. And who knows, maybe we'll be spared. And look what happens. Lo and behold, verse 10, when God saw what they did, how they turned from their evil way, God relented of the disaster that he said he would do to them, and he did not do it. God relented. God's judgment to Nineveh is averted because they turned away from their evil. So there are those who would try to discredit the Bible and argue that God changes. This is where we get one of the debates between like a vengeful, wrathful God of the Old Testament and the kind and gentle, uh, benevolent, sweet Jesus in the New Testament. But God doesn't change. This is, not, this is not the case. Again, going back to the introduction, we serve a God who cannot change. Malachi 3.6, God says, For I, the Lord, do not change. Therefore you, O children of Jacob, are not consumed. And Hebrews 13.8 says, Jesus Christ is the same yesterday and today and forever. If God could change, he would not be who he says he is. God did not change his mind by sparing Nineveh, and God did not change his mind about sparing his church. The fact that God cannot change is good news to us because we have a sure and steady hope that just like James 1.17 tells us, there's in God no variation, no shifting shadows. God is immovable in his character and immovable in his love for us in spite of us. God in mercy gave Nineveh an invitation to repent of their sin. And in his kindness, he led them to repent. And when sinners repent, when we draw near to God, God hears us because he himself draws near to us. We're all evil. We're all sinful. We're all treasonous rebel, rebel, rebels, rebels. We're all treasonous rebels in need of a heart change. And God, through the calling and power of his Holy Spirit, offers us love and mercy and forgiveness and grace. We need faith. And we need repentance to avoid God's wrath. And his wrath is just against sin. He has a justice wrath against sin. A justice anger, a just anger against sin. And apart from a work of Jesus to forgive us, we are all headed for destruction. 
This is why God came to earth through Jesus. In love, he condescended. He came down to us. He entered into our space in love and in truth and in wisdom. God is eternal and unchangeable. Salvation by faith alone through Christ alone has been the plan from the beginning. God has never changed. God from age to age has made a way for us to be made right with him through the sacrifice of cross, Christ to us on the cross. Jesus endured the death that was ours. And he purchased our pardon from the destruction that was due us. We're like Nineveh. We're all like Nineveh. We deserve his wrath. And we are given grace and mercy. There's a few things that I think we can glean perhaps from the Ninevites' response beyond just being able to identify with their wickedness. A generation of Ninevites died off, and the next generation returned to their conflict with Israel, basically going back to the sins of their fathers. This is a potential for all of us if we start resting and becoming content with where we're at and we don't pursue Christ uh, to wander away from God and his holiness. This is also a potential for all of us parents if we don't disciple our kids in the things of Jesus. If we aren't modeling Christ in our homes, it's very likely that our kids will grow up without a true and real and deep understanding of who Jesus is. I talk to people out here all the time who grew up in church in the, quote, Christian home, unquote, but it appeared that the church stuff was more cultural than authentic. And so rather than keeping up the charade of their parents, the adult kids have a low view of church and therefore a low view of Jesus. Listen, get your kids to church. Yes, important. But that can't be all that there is. Moms and dads, that cannot be all that there is. When you assume that the gospel will just take root in your kids' lives and don't engage your kids with spiritual conversations and engage their hearts, you are compromising the calling of God to make disciples even in your own homes. And listen, grace and peace, because we're not responsible for saving our children. That's the Holy Spirit's role. But we are responsible for obedience. We're responsible for faithful obedience to shepherd our families. So let's commit to that. If you're a dad, that's for you. If you're a mom, that's for you. If you're not a mom or dad, that is also for you because you can lay that over every area of your life. If you're a student, engage your peers. If you have a job, engage your coworkers. If you have neighbors or friends or whomever else, go. Engage. Because one day God will come back in judgment and it will be too late. This passage also teaches us that none of us are too far gone to be used by God for his glory. God uses Jonah's disobedience to teach him, to correct him, and to train him for obedience in order that he may be used by God. Again, God would have been just to just be done with Jonah. But that's not who God is. God loves the wayward sinner. 
God knew that Jonah would run. And God was still pleased to use Jonah. God used Jonah's disobedience for God's glory. This does not excuse Jonah's disobedience, but it shows us that we can't outsend God's willingness to forgive us. Where sin increased, grace increases all the more. But don't use grace as an excuse to remain in sin. But rather, see this grace as a gift that leads us to worship and mission because we have a God that's come to our rescue. This is the heart of true repentance. It isn't just regretting your sin, but abandoning it altogether. And turning to God, who through the sacrifice of himself on a sinner's cross offers us life. God is offering us the greatest gift of all, and that's himself. So will you receive his forgiveness through the grace given to us by the cross of Christ? Let's pray.